Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome to this IFG discussion on the recently announced Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. The merger of the Foreign Office and the Department for International Development is one of the biggest shakeups to how the UK runs its foreign and development policy in years. And while the Prime Minister's announcement of the merger in June took a lot of us by surprise, the fact of it was not necessarily unexpected. We've known that the Prime Minister has been interested in this since he was Foreign Secretary, if not before. The new department officially comes into being in September. But the Foreign Office and DFID have already been working together very closely for some time. They have a joint team of junior ministers. And we saw the Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, or the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Secretary, as he'll soon be called, announce a reduction of aid spending by of up to of nearly £3 billion pounds, uh, this year, which reflects the likely reduction in GDP resulting from the coronavirus pandemic. So clearly, the FCDO is already starting to come into being. As it takes shape, we want to consider what it should focus on and how it can be a success. And we have a great panel to discuss all of these questions and more. I'm joined by Sarah Champion MP, Labour MP for Rotherham and Chair of the International Development Committee, which published a report on the merger just a couple of weeks ago. James Cowan, CBE, who is the CEO of the Halo Trust, an NGO which works in countries recovering from conflict on landmine clearance and managing weapons and ammunition. And prior to joining Halo, James was a soldier serving in Kosovo, Afghanistan and Iraq, amongst other places. And as a major general, he commanded the 3rd Division. And then finally, Lord Kerr of Kinlochard, a crossbench peer who was permanent undersecretary at the Foreign Office and who during his diplomatic career served as ambassador to Washington and permanent representative to the EU, amongst other roles. So thank you all very much for joining me. Sarah, can I start with you? you you've been critical of the decision to merge the Foreign Office and DFID, but do you think this moment presents any opportunities for how the UK conducts aid and foreign policy? Um, of course, there are opportunities. Um, and I want to start by saying that it's entirely the gift of the Prime Minister how he arranges his government. Um, I think, uh, as you alluded to in the opening, um, it was a surprise that it happened now. Um, I have to say the timing as the Global South is entering the pandemic and uh, in June, we were in the depths of it, um, I find really unfathomable, um, not least because um, the staff, both in the FCO and DFID, were absolutely at capacity trying to deal with this. And as everyone knows, a merger takes an awful lot of resources um, and also headspace. Um, but uh, what also floored me was um, the lack of consultation and the lack of um, due process. The government had uh, rightly started the integrated review, which it had paused because of COVID-19. And that was looking at um, sort of the, the three departments of um, defence, development and um, foreign affairs to look at how they could work together in a much more effective manner. Um, so I recognise that, you know, that there are problems that need to be addressed. Um, that was paused and then suddenly the uh, merger happened without the evidence base for it. Um, I, I, I am very concerned at the disruption this is going to cause. I'm very concerned at the expense this is going to cause. I'm very concerned about how it um, positions us internationally because we were very highly regarded because of our development work. And also, um, whilst, again, I, I can see positives in sort of a, a joined up process, removing the silo culture, which can exist, removing the um, conflicts, um, the examples cited by the Prime Minister um, as good reasons, basically creating a buffer of countries between us and Russia, 
um, and taking money away from Africa, um, which isn't my understanding of development and humanitarian aid and joined up thinking. So I'm an optimist, so I, I, I want to see positives and in the long term they well, may well be. But at this point in time, I'm, I'm afraid I'm sceptical about what those benefits are going to be. Brilliant. Well, thank you. That's, that's a great start to the discussion. Lord Kerr, if I can turn to you, um, John, if I may. During your career in the Foreign Office, you saw various mergers and demergers of departments. Did what Sarah said about the sort of, you know, the, the distraction and the kind of impact on the capacity of staff in the departments, did that echo with your experience of, of being in a, in a department going through this kind of change? Yeah, absolutely. I, I worked for Diffidy in the field when it was uh, first set up as ODM with uh, a very good Secretary of State, Judith Hart. There were uh, some teething troubles then, and I uh, saw the demerger uh, with uh, Claire Short running uh, ODM, another very good minister. Uh, but again, there, were, there, were, uh, there was a year, 18 months of distraction. Uh, Professor Hazel of UCL's Constitution Unit, the great expert on all these things, said in today's times, the merger of larger departments is hugely distracting and time-consuming because of all the differences in terms of pay, conditions, IT systems, etc. Past experience in Whitehall shows that a merger means uh, senior officials do little else for 12 to 18 months, in which context it's a pity that uh, Simon McDonald is stepping down. I think this is particularly true of this merger merger of DFID and the Foreign Office, because the Foreign Office is staffed basically by the Diplomatic Service, which is a separate service, uh, which has uh, completely different conditions of service, doesn't uh, work to the Cabinet Secretary, works to Simon McDonald. It has, for example, a requirement that members of the Diplomatic Service should be UK nationals, because of its uh, remarkable uh, reputation. If it has been able to attract really good people from uh, across the world to uh, work in DFID, merging that and international staff with uh, a staff which, for good security reasons, has to be UK national, is going to take a long time. I uh, I'm also very uneasy, like Sarah, about the motivation for this. I mean, it's very good that uh, Mr. Johnson has said that we will stick to our commitments of the 0.7% GNI target. But the presentation with that terrible stuff about the comparison between uh, aid to uh, the Balkans and aid to East Africa, uh, and the implicit criticism that we should be doing less in East Africa in order to do more in the Balkans, it, it, it suggests he doesn't really get the primacy of the poverty reduction target, which is central to the aid program and should be. And the uh, great catch point in the sky soundbite was a disgraceful slur on a highly professional department, which has a remarkable reputation around the world. Now, there are potential upsides to this, but I'll generally come around to that in a moment. But uh, I'm with Sarah. I think the, the cons exceed the pros. Thank you very much. Another great introduction to some of the issues that I hope we can unpack in more detail over the next hour or so. 
James, your organisation works with, with both departments, I believe, and you yourself have experience of working with both of them overseas. And I think you're a bit more positive, perhaps, than, than our other two panellists as to the, you know, the opportunities from this merger. What, what are your hopes for, for the new department? So thanks, Tim. I think that it's important in life to distinguish between things you can influence and things you can't. And it seems to me this is a decision that's been taken. I agree there wasn't much notice given and, and the consultation didn't happen. But it was announced and it is going to happen. And as Sarah rightly says, it's the right of any democratically elected government to arrange its ministries as it wants. I think we should focus less on the inputs and more on the outputs. And what is, what is it that we're seeking to achieve here? I think that in the last 20 years, three events have happened that have shaped our world. The first was 9-11, the second was the financial crash, and the third is COVID. And the first event uh, heralded a decade of intervention, and the second event heralded a, a decade of non-intervention. What I hope is that we can begin to think about how we position ourselves in this very, very difficult world post-COVID, uh, in which a, perhaps a second Cold War is looming with China. And we think about the opportunities within the new ministry to uh, place Britain where it should be, um, given its size, given its position and given its interests. And so that uh, what we do in the world is shaped by that very, very serious um, event that's recently taken place. Thank you. And I, I, would, I would love to come on to some of those sort of really timely things shortly. If we can kick off the discussion by talking a bit more about sort of the, the big picture. So I think one argument for the merger that the Prime Minister advanced and that others have sort of supported is that it allows development and diplomacy to work hand in hand. And hopefully, I think, you know, the argument is that it would sort of avoid, you know, two different parts of the UK government speaking out different sides of, of the mouth. So are there areas currently where the two departments' priorities differ or, or perhaps even are in conflict? And can a new department reconcile those differences? Sarah, I don't know if you have particular thoughts from, from your time on the committee. Um, I, I don't have a specific example, um, but I would like to uh, use the example that Jay, James gave of uh, a terrorist attack and uh, looking at uh, the extremism uh, that's going on across um, Africa that is actually being fueled by people having uh, hunger, um, loss of opportunity and uh, unstable governments, which is all being exacerbated by uh, COVID-19. We know that um, re the recruitment is going on. And one of the things that I would like to see going forwards is that when we're looking to deal with terrorism, you've also got the humanitarian developmental voice at the table which has an equal weight because if you just focus on it from a defense point of view my concern is that you either miss or you you don't adequately deal with those underlying humanitarian issues like having a hungry child um or um uh, someone exploiting the instabilities uh, that uh, that um i don't know a, a, a pandemic is causing um and that's my concern. At, at the moment, we, we have those two voices which may well be opposing, but I think that leads us to having a, a good decision-making process happening. And there seems to be no um, uh, wish to have development sitting uh, within the Cabinet. Uh, my concern is that, uh, that there isn't uh, going to be an accounting officer. So where the money is going um, on the ODA spend isn't specifically being focused on. 
Um, and I would really want there to be a senior uh, civil servant as well as a political, whether it, it's a, a Secretary of State equivalent or, or senior minister, uh, putting that development argument forward. Um, because that's how we will work best together. And, and examples of that happen in this country with homelessness, for example. Uh, there will be a, a task force where the different departments all come together, work out a common strategy which complements each other to, to reach the objective. So I just hope going forward that DFID and those skills aren't completely subsumed and that they are respected and that they are consulted. Yeah, absolutely. Lord Kerr, I don't know if you have a sense from, from your time in, in the Foreign Office or, or since then, but Obviously, one of the, the, the more recent innovations is the National Security Council, which, which David Cameron set up at the start of the coalition with Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. Shouldn't that be the kind of forum that can make these trade-offs, make these set these strategies, as Sarah mentioned, and then sort of parcel it out to, um, to departments? And do you think this role will sort of see a dilution of the role of the NSC? Perhaps This new department will see a dilution of the role of the NSC? Well, I, I, I hope not, though I think the NSC will have to concentrate primarily on its security role. Uh, and that, uh, that will be quite difficult for David Frost, who doesn't have a security background. My feeling is that uh, it, it all depends on the government's motivation. The reason why Claire Short was a very successful development minister was not really because the department was separate from the foreign office. It was because she had the real backing of Gordon Brown, who was a real interest in America, and as Chancellor, he matters to uh, people looking for money for aid. Uh, the, her relationship with Robin Cook at the foreign office was rather a uh, pricky one, but uh, she got on extremely well with Gordon Brown, who backed the aid program all along, and of course Tony Blair's commitment to the uh, Millennium Gold was real. Uh, Andrew Mitchell, in my view, was a good uh, uh, development minister, principally because David Cameron was uh, uh, committed to the Millennium Goals and to the points and uh, target. So it, 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 it's not really the structures that uh, decide this. It's the motivation and commitment of, of those right at the top. I have to admit that I would be less nervous about this if uh, Rory Stewart were, uh, were Foreign Secretary. But the key is number 10. I have no idea what the Prime Minister's uh, real views on, uh, on development aid are and the Treasury. And of course, we're heading, I fear, for another uh, period of, of austerity. Actually, my bigger worry about it is... Uh, what it will do to one of the most important elements in our soft power at the moment. Uh, with our hard power uh, uh, falling both absolutely and relatively, uh, soft power is more important. But the universities and the research area and the legal professions on are all going to take a, a Brexit hit. Uh, and uh, the reputation of this country for knowing how to run financial markets took a hit 10 years ago and our reputation for good government is taking a hit because of the handling of the uh, pandemic. If the perception got abroad that we were using the aid program as a sludge fund to uh, assist trade promotion, defense sales and so on, even if that was 
are only true to a very limited extent. If that was the perception, then we would lose our place in the Premier Division on development aid. And we are very high in the Premier Division uh, now. Uh, DFID has, is a remarkable professional operation which has a very high standing globally and is a considerable element in our soft power credentials at the moment. So that's why I, I'm, I'm really worried, is that if the, 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 the tone from the top is, uh, yeah, you can you know, forget the Pagar Dam, you can, you know, we can fiddle these things a bit. You can deal with that in part by having separate accounting offices, I hope they will have separate votes, as I hope they will have separate scrutiny in the House of Commons, and I totally agree with Sarah on that. Uh, you can... You can do a bit, but you can't really deal with the problem if the tone from the top is wrong. So that's what's worrying me. I, I admit that, that there, these are fears about the future. I, I, I don't know what Mr. Johnson's views are. I don't know whether he is actually a, a strong supporter of aid, but I can't find anything in his past which, uh, which provides grounds for believing that. Okay, interesting. So... James, a couple of things there that would be interested to hear your thoughts on. Do you think this does sort of mark the beginning of a change in the government's aid strategy uh, and, and potential implications for the budget? But also, I don't know, maybe it's too soon, but, you know, what is what has the reaction been in the countries that the Halo Trust works in to this news? Do people see it as a, a change in focus away from the premier division of, of aid that, that Lord Kerr mentioned? Uh, let me take your, your last point first. I mean, I don't think so, no. I mean, most of the Halo Trust is a multinational NGO. Uh, our biggest donors are the United States, other big donors Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, Japan, Canada. Many of these countries already do this. I mean, very enlightened countries such as the Netherlands already um, operate in this way. So I'm, I really don't think um, this has to be uh, have the outcome you're, you're suggesting. I come back to this point about inputs and outputs. What, what will matter is what uh, the outputs look like. So for me... The three big opportunities in this are, the first is human rights. If there is to be some sort of standoff with China, then we in the West need to position ourselves as a bastion of liberal democracy. Can we present a front that supports uh, human rights and uh, the liberal Western way of life? Secondly, I think that conflict, its, its uh, resolution and its prevention has been very sadly neglected within the DFID structure. So DFID only has one weapon control program. It's a very successful one. It's the Global Mine Action Program. But it's actually only £100 million over three years. So £33 million a year out of a £15 billion ODA budget as of last year. That's tiny, really. It does strike me that since war is a primary driver of poverty, and of human suffering around, it really ought to be central. So we, our biggest operation is in Afghanistan. There, the Halo Trust drew money from both DFID and from the CSSF. And it was madness having these things separated in that way. I think there's an opportunity to bring those two things together and to make a success of it. A central pillar of the new ministry should be conflict, its prevention and its resolution. And, and thirdly, I think climate change and biodiversity. Again, because of the humanitarian, rightly humanitarian focus of DFID, it perhaps did not take a close enough look at climate. I think Rory Stewart began to take it that way, or at biodiversity. And I think, I think that must be 
central priority of the, of the new ministry. So those three opportunities, I think, must be at the heart of the new ministry. Thank you. So I think that's a, that's a good moment to move on to sort of perhaps more current events. Now, we've obviously we've spoken about climate change, we've spoken about the pandemic, mentioned China a couple of times. I'd like to discuss all of those. Sarah, what, what impact do you think the pandemic is going to have on uh, how the UK conducts development? What do you think the UK's priority should be in supporting uh, developing countries deal with the pandemic? And do you think the FCDO structure will help the UK government do that or will it be a hindrance? I mean, I, my, I'm hesitating because at this point in time, um, I don't know because um, the impact that it's having on our economy and therefore um, immediately the uh, percentage of money that we'll be giving um, is, is pretty catastrophic at the moment. Uh, and, you know, that, that's going to have a very real and direct consequence. Um, the impact that it is starting to have uh, in the developing world is enormous. I mean, we're seeing what's going on in India we're hearing reports about what's happening in, for example, Yemen and Syria. But of course, without the um, testing and the infrastructure, it's impossible to get the data to see exactly what um, the effect is. Um, and also, for me, it's the knock-on effect that it's having with um, existing aid programmes, um, as the aid sector is trying to um, shore up uh, to either deal with or prevent COVID uh, impacting on their regions. Uh, they're understandably uh, pausing other programmes. So we've already seen that measles is about to come back as a pandemic. I worry about tuberculosis. Um, I, I, I worry about famine. You know, the consequences of all of these things uh, is, is going to be quite staggering. And I'm, um, I'm, I, I, so, so it's hard for me to answer because um, it, it, it's, it's very much a live thing. Um, yeah. What I can say is, um, looking at positives, um, if FCDO is able to um, speak with one voice that is very focused, uh, unify all of the resources the UK has to address these issues, then of course that can only be a good thing. And I, I do completely understand um, there are situations where there may well be uh, either just a delay in communication between two departments or a standoff on, on sort of moral issues of two departments when actually the people on the ground just want help and they want it now. Mm -hmm. um, so I do get that. Um, and and I'm an optimist and I would I would hope in a couple of years, once this is bedded in, we will be in a strong position. My, my fear is um, that we need that clear leadership now. And as Lord Kerr has said, um, already this merger is tying up some of the heads of um, both departments, uh, which is taking them away from the work that we need them to be focused on right now. So I'm, I'm very, very concerned about the long-term impacts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and that that distraction point always comes through in, in any of these kind of departmental changes. We've looked at this at the IFG and it's often a sort of a two-year-plus journey until the new organization whatever it is uh you know is, is really sort of up and running at full strength and, and obviously there's a in the lifetime of of the government two years maybe not that long but in the lifetime of you know the next two years there's a lot happening so to go to to return to your point lord Kerr, about the distraction and you know do you think the fcdo is going to be sort of i don't know firing on all cylinders whatever the appropriate kind of uh, analogy is for the next year because as well as dealing with the pandemic um the UK has the presidency of the G7 next year, and then at the end of next year, uh, there's the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. Two big sort of you know set piece foreign policy events 
that the UK is in charge of. Is is are those, is there a risk that the UK isn't able to fully focus on those because it's reorganising Whitehall? No, not not a huge risk. I think um, uh, I. Um, I, th- I think we need to think very hard about COP26, and I'm not sure that uh, uh, the preparations are as advanced as they should be, and the uh, and the international diplomacy that's involved. Uh, and I think it's a bit hard to ask Mr. Sharma to do it, that he is uh, trying to uh, steer business through uh, the, uh, the virus and uh, the the Brexit um, complications at the end of the year. Uh, uh, I, I am uneasy that the, the government is not giving sufficient attention to that. I, I, I think the, the, uh, uh, the, uh, we can do um, while walking. I think it's, it's not impossible to do these things together. The, the, the sort of uh, team that will be working on G7 and so on is not the same team that will be working on the merger. So I, I don't want to exaggerate the distraction point. Mm-hmm. But it will be a, a bumpy couple of years. I think that in the field, uh, there will be uh, only advantages from this. I mean, I've sounded very negative so far. I think that uh, one should say that uh, the, uh, the aid program is likely to benefit from the better informed full-time attention of the head of mission, the high commissioner or the ambassador in the field. I think that uh, one fault of, of ODM did uh, was that the, the, the ex-colony of the Foreign Office tended to behave like an ex-colony and the Foreign Office always tended to behave like a disgruntled ex-colonial power. The uh, DFID or ODM uh, didn't like co-location, wanted their own office, wanted to be the ones who were uh, uh, going to negotiate with the finance ministry and so on. Actually, the finance ministry and the prime minister's office in the developing country didn't really understand this distinction between uh, the, the, the diplomats and the, the, the aid office. And bringing the two together will actually be useful for both. The ambassador will be better able to do his job on behalf of uh, uh, the British development interest. And uh, it will be better served if the local knowledge of the foreign office is better combined with the development expertise of uh, the present DFID. Uh, I, so I would expect uh, considerable benefits on the ground, though they don't outweigh my view that this is a very rum time to take on a big distraction and my nervousness about the motivation for the whole thing. Absolutely. So, well, I think um, there's a lot of other context we could talk about, and I'm sure we'll come back around to it, but perhaps to pick up that practical point, I mean, James, from your point of view, do you think, do you have a sense of what the strengths of each department are that you think should be preserved in the FCDO, or are there are there things where they, they can learn from each other? You know, can the, the Foreign Office do things better by bringing in different skills and vice versa? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt. And I mean, I think that what should be clear in all of this is that uh, that unity of purpose needs to be present. What Lord Kerr's talking about, and I really want to see heads of mission uh, empowered to be in charge of what is in going on inside their own embassy. And too often I've seen it uh, where an ambassador says, oh, well, that's diffid, nothing to do with me. Um, and that can't be right. Uh, and, and indeed, it will help them as, as they go to talk to, uh, to the ministerial contacts in whichever the country they're at. 
if they have that power and the checkbook that comes with it. Because sometimes I think ambassadors are, or, or indeed visiting foreign office ministers are not given uh, the, the respect they, they are due because they don't have the checkbook with them. Now they will have that. So I think that's really important. I would also say at, 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 a, at a departmental level, the sooner a chief operating officer, call him or her that, is appointed, the better, i.e. a minister of state of true power who does not um, uh, does not have necessarily cabinet uh, rights to sit and attend, um, but is, is truly empowered to deliver on this, leaving the foreign secretary to get on with his day job. Because I think unless that sort of second-in-command figure, chief operating officer, is appointed, bringing this together is going to be really difficult. And the third thing is I wouldn't try for too much change too soon. I would go for, and I think this is what they are doing, going for um, a, a good enough in September and then let the really profound changes happen really quite slowly thereafter so that it, we don't have the distractions that should, you know, they're true risks, they're not to be underplayed, uh, but they mustn't allow, they mustn't be allowed to distract us in, in the coming period. Great, thank you. Um, Sarah, I'd like to talk about uh, scrutiny. I, I know you're sort of obviously, you know, very interested in how the new de department is scrutinised. Uh, what is your view on how Parliament can, can best scrutinise it? Obviously, the there's, I think, a question about what happens to your committee. I'm not sure sort of what the latest is on that, but so what, what are you hoping for? Um, well, we're haggling at the moment to change the um, remit of um, IDC, uh, the International Development Committee, to uh, become the ODA Scrutiny Committee. Um, there has always been an ODA Scrutiny Committee in some form or a subcommittee mm -hmm. since uh, 1969. Um, it was only when the department was made, uh, created, that we uh, focused just on departmental stuff. The money is the, the key thing for me, where it's spent, uh, how it's spent uh, and the value for money that it gets for the taxpayer. And for uh, a long time, uh, DFID has been the main um, uh, sort of benefactor of, of the ODA spend, but uh, that's gently been um, uh, uh, spent in different departments. So I think uh, DFID now has 73% uh, of the spend and the rest is across departments like the um, FCO Defence. Uh, home office, education, biz. So for me, it's uh, scrutinising where that money is going, um, making sure that it is uh, for the purpose uh, that it is uh, uh, defined in, in statute. Um, and just keeping that um, focus on the alleviation of poverty, mm. making sure we don't go back to, um, as Lord Kerr said, a whiff of uh, sort of tide aid or sort of using the money for sort of greasing the wheels um, because that will have such long-term damage to our international standing um, that even if it is happening by accident we need to stop that and my concern is that um, whenever we have the um, international audit of where that odor spend is going uh, DFID always comes up in the top 10. It's not perfect, it's far from it, but it comes in the top 10, whereas departments like the FCO tend to come a lot lower down, and their focus is much, much more on the middle-income countries, whereas DFID development um, is on the poorest countries, and, and that's where in statute it ought to be focused on. Um, to sort of to link to a point that um, James was saying, and I, I agree with all the points he made, one of my um, sort of concerns is the government is looking at... Um, was proposed that the uh, IDC become the subcommittee of the um, Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, the reality of that is uh, just capacity. Mm -hmm. 
it's you know it's already a very very busy department and mm. 15 billion pounds scrutinizing that actually takes a lot of energy um it, it would immediately for the fco their their spend their budget is going up by 400 percent yes so to, to try and scrutinize that on top of everything else is going to be really difficult unless you have a dedicated uh, committee and to sort of um I, I get james's points entirely about you know having one voice in country and the simplification of that but also the reality is because the ambassadors haven't had that spend that checkbook um there really very quickly needs to be someone in country as well as you know in government who is looking at that spend who knows about procurement and tendering managing projects getting value for money uh, and they're just accounting for that and and that person or people need to be in place really quickly mm. so we have got the transparency from the 1st of september because my concern is in the rush to um keep projects going particularly ongoing projects that accountability gets lost in the mix and and that could have some very catastrophic long-term effects absolutely and what what about james's suggestion of, of this kind of chief operating officer minister figure do you think there should be a sort of you know a second in command minister in the new department who is the aid person i think that that's a very very sensible um suggestion uh it, it's to sort of to keep that focus on to keep the the voice at the table saying you know ah oh, yes but what if um, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, um, I, I, as soon as the uh, merger was announced, uh, I was taken off the um, Committee on Arms Export Controls, uh, a committee made up of um, sort of three departments, international trade, uh, uh, international development and defence. Um, that worries me because there may well be a situation where um, from the, the trade and defence point of view, you're, you're arguing to sell arms to X country mm. without the development voice to say, mm, actually, do you, do you know the people running that are terrorising their own people, are using the weapons on their own people? Should we really be selling to them? It, it's those sort of things that um, concern me, that that little what if voice or how about if we do it this way voice if it's not there at the top table um the unintended consequences of that could be um well qu quite concerning i'd say absolutely absolutely um lord kerr others I'm have mentioned some of the um some of the kind of things that should be brought out in this merger some of the skills that should be preserved some of the practical steps what do you think you know you were you were head of the foreign office in 97 when diffid was created what do you think can be learned from from that demerger as it's as it's reversed 20 how many years later well uh, first i i totally agree with james that the uh, the, 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 the the chief operating officer idea is correct. I'm, I'm sure there needs to be a very senior Ministry of State, which may, I think, uh, it would be great to have in the cabinet. We frequently had uh, two foreign office ministers in the cabinet. Usually the remit of the second one was uh, Europe. Well, we, uh, that uh, does create a vacant chair, which could be filled mm. by uh, the, the minister in um, uh, from DEO, who uh, is responsible particularly for government. And I do think reinventing is uh, really important. Integrating budgets would be a very bad idea. I'm with Sarah on the need to have proper scrutiny by the House of Commons. House of Lords are hopeless on this because we, we don't really have financial responsibility. Public Accounts Committee in the House of Commons is, of course, very important. But it's, it's in uh, its very perspective. Uh, the Public Accounts Committee can't prevent a scandal. It can merely prevent the next scandal by exploring uh, 
will happen. Uh, so I think that the day-to-day scrutiny by a, a committee whose sole remit is uh, is uh, the aid program, indeed, really, it's, it, it's, uh, it deserves it. I think that's essential. I should say that uh, uh, I should have said before that uh, James is absolutely right about uh, conflict prevention, and, and there is no doubt that that uh, war is a uh, major contributor to destitution, poverty, migration, and uh, the conflict prevention. There could be more spent on that, and that can be perfectly reasonably classified as uh, development. So uh, I, I think that's that's correct. I would, but I think it is important to have in uh, uh, the Foreign Office a uh, Rory Stewart figure as the senior Minister of State, ideally with seating cabinet. Great, thank you. I'm going to turn to some of the questions we've had in uh, from uh, interested members of the public, various uh, sort of parliamentarians, all sorts of people have got in touch, um, but we might cycle around to some of these issues again. So. First up, um, Baroness Rawlings got in touch to ask, she said, aid donations were always calculated by the number of people below the poverty line, which is why we were always giving money to China and India, uh, which she says is a crazy way of calculating. Uh, will this policy be reviewed? Do you think this is an opportunity to, to think about how, how the UK does aid differently? Uh, Sarah, I'm going to pitch that in your direction if you don't mind. Um. I mean, it, it, it makes me nervous, <laughs> this, um, because there is wiggle room within the um, existing definition. Um, and that is um, sort of the in the national interest angle. Um, I would argue that we need to maintain that focus on alleviating poverty. Um, yes, we ought to be uh, doing that by developing the countries, um, but it ought to be for um, the right reasons and the morally right reasons, rather than just um, for the benefit of the UK. I, I think that by doing the right thing long term, we actually benefit as a country better. Um, I've seen um, where, you know, we've supported um, young people with their um, education, higher education particularly, and then when they go back to their country, uh, they get, you know, great offices and great set up, great businesses and want to work with the UK because they've seen us as a country that does the right thing and they want to repay the support that we've given to them. I, I, I become nervous when we start tampering with definitions um, in the national interest, um, if the national interest is the overriding reason for doing it. So um, I personally, uh, I think the focus should always be on um, the lowest income countries uh, where uh, there has been reviews of spend and it's been not by different uh, department, uh, but by other departments on middle income countries. That's where we sort of get into the grey areas. And they're the examples that tend to turn up in the Daily Mail. You know, why on earth are we paying for cinemas in India, for example? I think the British public by nature are humanitarians and charitable and, and they want to alleviate poverty. Uh, they're less keen on supporting uh, countries that have, you know, a, 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 a very uh, sizable middle class, uh, make more money, to be blunt about it. Yeah. So it'd be interesting wanted to see if that that focus can be sort of transplanted and secured in the new department because as you say I think a lot of the criticism of those kind of projects is often actually levied at the foreign office exactly. uh, and other departments that spend the aid budget rather than uh, differed. 
James, there are a couple of questions about the sustainable development goals, which I might pitch in your direction. Tell me if you if you don't think these are relevant. But uh, Ken Bluestone, who works at Age International, has asked, um, leave no one behind is a public commitment the government has made to implement the sustainable development goals. And so what leadership structures and systems are necessary to make the SDGs a priority within the new department? And then Richard Pyle asked a similar question saying, are the SDGs still the driving force for the UK's international development agenda? And how can the government ensure they remain at the centre of policymaking within the new department? Yeah, I think I think this leads on very nicely from what Sarah was just saying. For me, this business about national interest is um, a little bit, the difference really between rail politic and what I would hope is good old fashioned statecraft. Um, what I'm, I think we're witnessing with China is through its, its uh, Belt and Road Initiative, um, naked rail politic. It's using economic power uh, with a slight fig leaf of, of trying to improve people's lives, but actually there's an absolute um, selfish interest at the heart of it. I think the way we use our aid, um, and I do believe the Sustainable Development Goals are an excellent peg against which we can judge our performance, means that we are viewed in a much better way than that nakedly selfish approach. And I think we should absolutely stick to them. Um, now, if you ask me, will we? I have no idea. I'm not a member of the government. But should we? I think we should. Nice and succinct. Thank you very much. Um, Lord Kerr, if I could turn to you with a question from Paul Beaver, who has said... Can you ask the panel what benefits they can see for international trade, the prosperity agenda and global Britain from the departmental merger? So we've talked a little bit about defence and security, but what about on the trade and, and prosperity side? Do we think the FCDO will be better placed to, to I guess, capitalise on that? And obviously, as you mentioned, you know, we're leaving the transition period at the end of the year. Will the FCDO help the UK get the trade deals that the government uh, is, is hoping for? I don't think there's, a, uh, there's much benefit in this here. I would myself have favoured the merger of the FCO and the export promotion uh, uh, which very nearly took place uh, under Tony Blair, but uh, unfortunately Peter Mandelson came back from Brussels and was successfully solved the efforts made by people like me to uh, take trade promotion into the foreign office. Uh, I, uh, I would have preferred that now uh, than uh, a merger with development. Uh, trade promotion clearly fits very well with the foreign office's remit, which is to pursue uh, British interests worldwide. Of course, I uh, accept that uh, British interests on any sane definition include uh, the reduction in world poverty. Uh, uh, because no man is an island, and uh, we see uh, the migration flows which cause concern in this, in this country uh, as a result of, of uh, uh, lack of development. Uh, but I, 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 I don't really think that there, there is much of an upside for uh, a Union Jack promotion. Uh, across the world, global business agenda, from uh, this merger. And I think it's, it's a pity that uh, we not having the other merger that uh, I would uh, have preferred. I do think that the, uh, the global Britain rhetoric, we need to be quite careful about at a time when we are uh, caused a good deal of puzzlement across the world 
by what we're doing to ourselves with uh, with Brexit, and uh, we will we are clearly going to go through uh, a rather sticky patch, whether or not there is an agreement is all to be uh, with the European Union. Now, I think we we need to remember that the flag waving, uh, we're world beating rhetoric. I think needs to be remedied a little bit. Thank you, um, Sarah. If I can pick up that just quickly because we've mentioned Brexit, the UK does work quite closely with the EU on development, so much more closely than it does on foreign policy and around. Um, obviously, you know, we're still some way from seeing the, the shape of the, the agreement with the EU, but do you think the end of the transition period in December of this year will affect uh, how the UK works with, with Brussels on development? And do you, again, you know, is the FCDO, is that an opportunity to do more with Brussels or, or, or take back control more on development from Brussels, to, to use that phrase? Um, yeah, don't don't bait me with slogans. <laughs> um, what, what I would say is this is something which I don't know why people aren't talking about, because a lot of our um, ODA spend uh, goes to EU and um, that there are strengths and weaknesses with sort of multilateral partnerships. Um, but I haven't heard any conversations about whether or not that money is going to continue or if we're looking to do, I don't know, bilateral or or. or give more to the UN or World Bank or I, I don't know. Um, and, and that's exactly the reason why I think we, we need to have that um, developmental voice either at cabinet or, or definitely at senior minister level because it, it seems to be being forgotten. I mean, I'm sure it's not. It's just not being talked about. Um, but I'd also like to say a little bit about the, the whole global Britain because mm-hmm. um, while Lord Kerr was talking, um, I was remembering the uh, Cool Britannia slogan and, right. uh, and I, I loved it. <laughs> and, and I do think that there is very much um, something about having um, a unified message going forwards. And that takes clear leadership in government, whether that's from the prime minister or across the cabinet. Um, but I don't think that means that you can't have lots of different departments all singing from that same hymn sheet. It's just that someone needs to be writing the hymn and handing it out. And I I don't think that just doing a merger gets you to that position. We need to have someone who has got that vision that is bringing everybody together and that is actively promoting that internationally. So that's what I want to be seeing now. And if by the end of um, August, when this merger is meant to be completed, which of course it can't possibly be completed, but I think if, if the government was coming out with that clear vision that the rest of us could rally behind at all levels, that would help us with you know, trade, um, international standing, leverage. So, so I think that will be the one thing that I'd be asking for over the summer recess. Great. And, and presumably, I mean, you know, we know the government is conducting this integrated review, which, which as mentioned, was paused because of the, the pandemic. Um, but presumably the, the hope is that that integrated review provides that strategy, provides that hymn sheet. And then that sort of sets, you know, the priorities for the FCDO, but also the Ministry of Defence, the Department of International Trade uh, and, and, and all the rest of the bits of the UK government that operate internationally. Um, are, you, are you optimistic for the IR? Do you think it will deliver that? Or? Well, I just hope that um, the review doesn't say do not merge DFID with the Foreign Office. That would be <laughs> disastrous. Um, I, I mean, that that's that's what I, I, I don't need to agree with it. Um, but I, I like to see the evidence for decisions being made. Um, and that's why, you know, we, we, we want a parliamentary voice, we want the parliamentary scrutiny so that so that we can actually help and hold the government to account and drive it sort of in the right direction. Um, 
so so yes that would be what i would hope would come out of it the problem with that is um with the timetable that they were talking about sort of end of autumn into winter so to be quite honest uh, it, that's too late we we, yeah. we need it now yeah yeah james what are, what are your thoughts on the integrated review are you hopeful for, for what it means for hmg abroad well absolutely i i am hopeful for it i think if one is cynical the global britain slogan is a slogan in search of a strategy and there's a lot of flesh to be put on the bones of it um, to make it meaningful and I, I hope i've sort of indicated three areas in the form of conflicts um climate uh, and human rights that that might form the basis for that i'm sure there are other things as well um but i'd just like to touch on a couple of other points made first of all on europe um you know i know my own organization's finance as well obviously um we are funded our syrian program is funded by uh, the European Union's ECHO programme. Now, from January, we won't be eligible for that money anymore because we won't be uh, an EU entity. We've actually registered in Europe, um, uh, but, but we haven't been there long enough. We have to have several years of auditable accounts, and therefore we can't be eligible until 2024. I hope that, first of all, that the deal will overcome that and that there will be a deal. Secondly, if there isn't a deal, the repatriated money, uh, there is there is a a substitution programme by which money that was formerly sent to Europe by the UK is then spent on substituting for any lost money in the European Union. Thirdly, I think it is restrictive practice by the EU to exclude um, foreign NGOs from its work. It's, it's not something the Americans would do, it's not something the British would do, it's very peculiar behaviour and I, I, I think it should be stopped. I am concerned uh, by the division between um, bilateral expenditure from DFID to UK NGOs and multilateral expenditure. A huge amount of the DFID spend is spent through multilateral instruments. Mm. And I think sometimes that is absolutely logical. For instance, um, the recent Gavi announcement um, is, is fantastic and, and you know, full marks to Ambridge Valium for that. But a lot of money is, is very curious. So for instance, um, we're the beneficiary of the DFID Global Mine Action Programme. 54% of it is spent through the UN. Why? I mean, there's no need for it. All that happens is a vast amount of uh, very expensive bureaucracy. That money should be repatriated, in my, in my opinion, and spent through um, bilateral instruments with NGOs directly. And the British taxpayer would get a much, much better return on their investment, uh, especially in these straitened times. So I hope that gives some sort of reflections on the last few comments. Definitely. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I'm going to take one more of the questions we've had in, and, and then I'll turn to sort of some concluding thoughts. But I think this one is, is for you, Lord Kerr. Um, David Natzler gets in touch to ask, should all permanent staff of the new office be able to compete for vacancies as they arise, regardless of their department of origin? Uh, I, I'm not much enough to know what uh, uh, the Prime Minister Secretary's had in mind. Uh, I, I think the nationality point is a, a serious one. Uh, I uh, I think it would be quite difficult for the Foreign Office to agree that uh, people working on defence, security, intelligence in the Foreign Office, or people handling the product of intelligence agencies in the Foreign Office, uh, could be uh, non-UK nationals. Uh, and uh, it, it has a, a remarkable uh, uh, multinational staff of real expertise in, in development, development economics. I, I uh, 
Uh, so I'm not criticizing not being uh, UK national only, but I do think this is a a, a, a quite serious um, problem. I think on the on uh, the ground, the posts, it's not really a problem. Uh, I would hope that uh, uh, DFID staff would be able to uh, uh, compete uh, for posts abroad. Uh, not just on uh, development, but on economic work more generally, and so on. I, I, I don't really see the problem abroad. The problem at home, I think, is, is quite a big one. Uh, I, uh, uh, I, I remember a, 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 a similar demerger uh, uh, problem with, about the handling of intelligence in, in 1997-98, which uh, was successfully solved. But these things do take the um, a very long time, and uh, now we are prepared time to be tackling them with uh, the virus, with Brexit, with everything else going on. So uh, uh, I'm, I'm sorry it's, it's happening, but I'm sure that people will contrive to make the success of it, and it will be very important that nobody on the uh, present staff of either department should see their um, prospects uh, diminished by the merger. There should be increased prospects for some and no diminution for anybody. Great, thank you. And uh, actually, just one more quick question for, for you, Lord Kerr, if you don't mind. Um, so you mentioned how Sir Simon MacDonald, the, the Permanent Secretary of the Foreign Office, is leaving before the new department comes into existence. What would your advice to uh, his or her successor be on, on taking that, that role? Oh dear, it would be presumptuous. It's a very long time since I was in that office. I think the, uh, probably my message would be that this isn't a, 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 a takeover, it's, nor is it even a merger. It's the creation of something completely new uh, in which um, development will have a high and protected status on you know, in strategic aims. Uh, I, I, I think everybody in both departments are going to be affected. Uh, nobody in the Foreign Office should uh, go around behaving like uh, the colonial power again, saying we've got them back. I'm sure nobody is, is planning to do that, but uh, it, it, it's, it will have to be seen as the uh, the creation of something new, merging the, the, the best qualities of both, and absolutely not taken. Great, thank you. So that is a nice segue into my closing question. So just in the last few minutes, I would like to ask you all, um, in five years' time, looking back, what will you need to see happen to be able to say that this was the right decision that, and that the Foreign, office, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office was, was a success? Uh, James, can I turn to you first? I return to my first point, look at the outputs. Where, where will the world be in five years' time? Are we going to be um, accommodating or competing with China? Uh, what are the second order issues of the world? Um, a great swathe of the Middle East, uh, of Africa, of Asia is in conflict. Will those countries still be as fragile and conflict-affected as they are at the moment? Can we make a difference there? What will be our relationship with Europe? Um, how, how will we interact with a, a, a diminished America in, in this new world? These things are incredibly important, and they far outweigh, to my mind, the 
rearranging of the deck chairs in Whitehall. We must focus on these things as the absolute priority. Great, thank you. Um, Lord Kerr, what was what was what we see? The question five at times will we still be seen as being in the in the Premier Division? I agree with James that conflict prevention, climate change, and human rights these are uh, these should be right at the top of the agenda. But they are all aspects of uh, development, linked to development. Is the British government still uh, in five years' time investing? Uh, 0.7% or more of GNI in uh, development, is it uh, delivering on the uh, Millennium Goals? Did it uh, run a successful uh, COP26? Uh, did it put its money where its mouth is? Did it take the, the necessary domestic measures to uh, reflect its le legal, its legislative commitment to uh, uh, a no-carbon economy. Uh, at present, we are uh, we have uh, very good on the talk. Uh, we've written the commitment into law, but uh, we haven't done much of the walk yet. So I would say that if we are to remain in the Premier League, we will, uh, despite the difficulties of, uh, that we're going to face in the next two or three years because of of the pandemic and and Brexit and the recession that the pandemic uh, produces, which will be exacerbated by Brexit. Despite that, uh, did we stick to what we were? We said were our aims, and did uh, the structures in Whitehall reflect our sticking to that? Great, thank you. And Sarah, how, how would you judge um, success? I, I, success for me would be that we're recognised internationally as a country that takes our moral responsibility on the world stage seriously and delivers on that um, and acts swiftly and appropriately to threats, uh, both to our own country, but also to those that are less vulnerable to us and works in a collaborative way to resolve them. I'd also really like us to be in a position that the British public is very proud of our international work um, that has good parliamentary scrutiny so that we can show transparency and value for money and that as a country we, we just feel that that morally we're on the right page. Brilliant thank you thank you so much everyone I thought that was a fascinating discussion a lot of questions still to come uh, and, and as we've said you know the FCDO officially comes into being in September, but we know that there'll be a lot more work as it really gets up and running. Uh, so at the IFG, we're, we'll continue to, to follow this topic closely. Um, thank you to our panellists. Uh, really appreciate your time. And thank you to everyone who sent in their questions. I apologise if we weren't able to ask answer or discuss your question. Please do follow the IFG, check out our other events and podcasts. You can get everything on our website. So I'm going to close there. Thank you once again to everyone for joining me. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events.